This is the number one showbiz podcast. It's Talk for Two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary. Welcome in, everyone, to another episode of Talk for Two. Okay, this one is completely, completely self-indulgent. When I was living with my parents during the height of the pandemic, I watched the Showtime series Dexter a lot. I still do. Need to finish uh, season eight. Anyway, in the early days of the show, a young man played a teenaged Dexter. Now, I googled this person, Devin Gray, and I found out that he wrote a thriller film I just happened to have in my Amazon Prime watch list, but hadn't uh, hadn't had a chance to take a look at yet. It was called I See You. So I went to watch I See You, and you guys, it spoiled all other thrillers for me. It was perfectly timed. The misdirection is perfect. The actors hit all those twisty beats right at the moment of maximum impact. I highly, highly recommend this film. And it stars John Tenney and Helen Hunt, two actors I just adore. After being bowled over by this movie, I just had to interview the writer. I emailed his management, and much to my surprise, Devin Gray wrote me back directly. Now, this was such a great chat about life as a screenwriter and the philosophy behind writing thrilling mysteries, something I've always wanted to cover on this show, but have not had the chance to. We also talked about a project of his that has been in development for a long time that I hope comes to fruition soon. It's such a great premise. And yes, we even talk a little bit about his time on Dexter. Here now, purely so that I could fangirl at him, our interview with Devin Gray. Devin Gray, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm well. I'm good. I, I was just, uh, you know, we were just chatting a little before about how we're we're all in our homes, or we we should be all in yeah. our homes right now. So I've, um, so I'm good. I mean, every day feels a little bit like Groundhog Day. It's sort of just the same. <laughs> you know, I, I I lose track of time of what day of the week it is constantly. But um, but I feel you know I I I feel most today I feel mostly good. So yeah. that's good. What's a Saturday anymore? What is a Saturday? You know, it's just crazy. I know. <laughs> I know. It really it really is. I mean, every day is sort of Saturday. And then also, like, I get work emails now on actual Saturday. So it's sort of like there is no there is no weekend, but there's also no week. I don't I don't think any of us know how to really behave no. in this time. I'm a I'm a I'm working remotely and I'm a TV producer. Can't say what for because I keep the podcast separate. And it's like. Uh, on a on a Saturday, my whole thing is I work Sunday through Friday. I I do the podcast stuff mostly on a Sunday, and then Monday through Friday I'm I'm at my other job. And Saturdays I just disconnect. And after hours yeah, with yeah. that job, I just get disconnect. And somebody says, "What are you doing at home? You 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 can do it." I'm like, "I could, but then I'd never get any rest, and I'd never be and I'd never be sane." So I totally feel right, you. Right. <laughs> completely exactly you our brains need to have that like you have to have that downtime yeah but that to, begs that begs the know. question what is an actor a character actor such as yourself a screenwriter such as yourself and we'll we'll get to how much i hate you for what a genius you are in a minute oh my oh, god. god but what no. are you what's the work that you've been able to do and find during this quarantine I mean, acting work has been, uh, you know, nothing really. I mean, of there's, there's been a couple auditions that have come in that are obviously on tapes mm-hmm. um, that I make at home and then send in. Um, but uh, writing wise has actually been very busy. And I, I feel like anytime I tell a friend this, they want to like punch me in the face because <laughs> everyone else is not busy. But I, I have been very busy writing wise during this time, almost kind of busier than I feel like I've ever been before, which is, um, which is great. So my experience of, of quarantine, I think is probably different than a lot of people's just because mm-hmm. I, I, I've had so much to focus on work-wise that I often then forget there is a pandemic happening. And then I feel like it's, um, you know, at the end of the day, I look at the news and I'm like, Oh my God, yeah, there's this whole other part of this, you know, you, mm-hmm. and then it makes the work feel not as important because you're like, yeah, the, there's su- such an important thing going on in the world that, that it's weird to be writing movies and, <laughs> and you know, p- putting your head in that space. I mean, obviously we need that. We need that escape to, to be, um, to be sane, but it also is strange to be working so much right now when there is, you know, s- so many awful things going on in the world. 
Um, but I am. Yeah, I'm busy. I, I, I'm grateful to be very busy. See, even that shocks me on the writing side because I would think things would shut down. Are you writing for this new environment of trying to produce as much as can be produced at a distance, virtually, socially distanced, remotely is the word I was looking for there. Are you writing scripts based on remote production or are you writing with a, a look ahead to a post-pandemic landscape where we're all back to normal? I, it's a bit of both. I mean, some things, some projects that I, I am working on that we don't talk about anything to do with the pandemic. It's sort of just writing it as if it's going to be filmed normally, you know, with, with a large crew and large cast. And, um, and then there's, there's definitely other, other projects where I'm some of some spec pieces that I've had that are a little bit more contained that before the pandemic weren't being given a ton of attention now a lot of people are interested in those because you know they're they're one or two characters in the film and they're all in one location and i think that is is desirable to what the film industry is going to look like for the next little while i think that that obviously um is going to be safer to to make than the alternative so the, yeah it's, to answer your question it's sort of a bit of both and um and it's weird as I write things, I, I do have a part of my brain that's like, will this ever get made? Is this ever even going to be something that like it, th there is that, that funny part of like, uh, what, what are we all still doing? Like, are we is there still a film industry? And of course there is. But it's, um, you know, it, it, like I was saying before, it's just weird to look, read the news and, and live in the reality of what the world is. And then um, and then kind of turn off that part of the brain because you have to to be able to sit down and write this script that isn't set in a, in a post um kind of covid world it's 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 an odd you know it's an odd thing but but yeah i'm, I'm doing a, again that's a long-winded answer to say i'm doing a bit of both no I, I love that and you have a lot of scripts that are very popular allison adams has been on the blacklist since 2016 now is that did that screenplay become icu or is that something entirely different that hasn't been made that's that's entirely different that mm -hmm. I, icu was a film that i wrote I think it must be seven or eight years ago now that I wrote wow. that first draft of that. I wasn't, I wasn't arrived and I wasn't getting paid to write things at the time. I was just, I was acting and I wrote that as um, sort of just something fun to write. And it ended up taking off and, and living a lot of different lives at a lot of different companies with different directors. And, um, and eventually it ended up with Zodiac in, in Matt Waldeck's company. And, um, and they brought on Adam Randall to direct it. So that was, something from a long while ago that finally got made and finally was able to sort of live on, on the screen. Um, Alice and Adams was something I wrote many years later that I, when I signed with new agents, they were like, what else, you know, what else do you want to write? And I pitched them like seven log lines. And one of them was the log line for Alice and Adams, which was, you know, a movie about five women who are all very different, but they share the same first and last name. And when a little girl goes missing that has that same name, they all sort of it sort of unites these women that share her name in this psycho thriller sort of um, sort of story that that is sees them sort of being killed off one by one. And they all share the name Allison Adams. So that's that's what that movie's about, which is which is very different than I see you. And that one hasn't been made. It, it was at Sony for a little while. And um, and now, you know, I would love to see someone pick it up and, and turn it into something because I. I'm really proud of that that script, but um, but you know, it's I, I learned a lot with that too because I sort of thought that as a writer, being an actor for so long, I was like, oh, a writer will be I write spec scripts, they get sold, they get made, and I'm realizing that a lot of the times the spec scripts now, which I think all writers already knew this, and I, I'm just late to the to, to realizing that the spec scripts then they serve as like auditions almost to get jobs at companies where they have already existing material that then they're like we loved Alison Adams would you want to write this totally other movie for us based on us liking the script so that's sort of what a lot of my work now as a writer is is just these other companies that that have read that script or read other scripts of mine and then bring me in to write um something totally new and, and different well the reason I reached out to you is because I sat on a Wednesday night last week so actually a week from a week ago today as we're recording this and I watched I See You. And when when the twist happens, when the first thing happens, I sat there with my mouth open for the rest of the movie. 
That movie oh, is genius. <laughs> and the big thing I wanted to ask you about it, and we're not going to do any spoilers here because, folks, if you love thrillers, I, I've not seen a thriller as perfect as I see you in a long time. I mean, and I'm not trying to blow smoke, Devin. I really was taken aback by just how Thank s- you. That s- smart it is. means a lot. Thank you so much. And, Thank you. And I just have to know, with writing thrillers, with writing I see you, where do the puzzle pieces start to come in for you? How do you write into those, those that puzzle that it becomes? Oh, that I, I love that question because I, the puzzle aspect of anything that I write is the most exciting part to me. Like I love, I love the manipulation factor of being a storyteller and getting to sort of lay all these little clues and do them in a way that from one perspective looks very benign and you don't really pay attention. But then from another perspective, obviously it means this totally new thing. And Mm -hmm. I I love mysteries in general. I love, you know, Agatha Christie stuff is what I grew up on. So I, I think for me, like it's, it's definitely knowing what is the end, the end goal here. What is the solution to this mystery? And then working the way, my way backwards and sort of going, okay, then what are all the little things I can show that are not going to be super obvious, but then when you do get to the conclusion, you don't feel like suddenly the rug's been ripped out from under you and you don't, you know, that you realize some part of your brain was picking up on little things that, um, that hopefully make it make sense in the end and and feel satisfying. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, it's like building, building the puzzle backwards. It's like building from the ending, um, and then knowing how much room you have to sort of tease little elements of that, um, throughout and then a finding you know what are the red herrings and and i never like to have a red herring just for the sake of a red herring it's like how can you have a red herring that still means something but means maybe something different than you thought it, it meant initially and um and i think everything that i find i'm, I'm drawn to write is mm-hmm. is sort of set up that way because i think i do love that aspect of getting to manipulate like i think it's really fun to to, to take someone on a ride where they just don't think that this is what they signed up for and then have it be. And a lot of viewers don't like that, but I, I love that in a movie. So I get excited when other people like that. You got to understand, Evan, I spent the rest of the week Googling for movies that are like movies with twists throughout. Like I was like, Oh my God, this is just oh, genius. You know? And that's why I asked about Alice and Adams. Cause you need to have that made anyway, done fangirl. <laughs> um, the, because in ICU, and again, I really want this to be a spoiler-free uh, free interview, but at the same time, first of all, John Tenney straddles one of those things that you were just talking about, and I'm not going to yes. say it again, yes. uh, of yeah. you know the certain things with him that rug's not pulled out from under, under you. Mm-hmm. And also, the big risk that you took that I absolutely loved, took a lot of guts, is you basically show the same movie twice. From different perspectives. Right. Yes, yes. Which a lot of people don't love. And it's, it's funny because a lot of the reviews that I've read, a lot of people are like, oh, we, that part was so annoying. It sort of dragged on and on. And we already seen this stuff. And so I think, you know, I, I obviously I see you as one of the first scripts that I've ever written, too. So I I feel like maybe there's there's learning in that and going, OK, like maybe next time I wouldn't show exactly every all these pieces. I'd let the audience fill in more gaps. But I do. I sort of love like the the viewer in me. And I think when I write, I think any writer probably writes something that they themselves would enjoy watching. And I think for me, I do like to see sort of the thing redone again. And Mm -hmm. a a tentpole for this film was um, there's this French movie called he loves me. He loves me not, Mm -hmm. which um, I don't know if you, if you've seen, but I, I, that movie sort of does that exact thing where they rewind halfway through and they go back and they, they show, the whole film again and you realize like oh my goodness who i thought this woman was is actually this totally different kind of woman and i was looking at it wrong and now we're seeing all these other pieces that we're missing and i i love that kind of thing and and so that was what i attempted to do with um with this story is is show it again just from this totally different perspective um and then, and then adam randall the director coming on he very much shared that vision and i was so grateful to have him be the director because he got immediately he got what the movie was and mm-hmm. what I loved about the movie. And, and then he really executed all of that part of it really well. I felt, and and I was, to me, that's the most exciting part in the movie is when it suddenly switches mm-hmm. to this totally different perspective. And, and also even the way it's filmed changes. And yep. it like that to me gives me chills because I want a movie to do that. And I've always wanted to watch a movie that does that. And, 
so I was so happy that he he did that. He he captured exactly what I had hoped that would be. I love that because, you know, it's funny. That's what the critics say. And, and maybe it did. I mean, you can Monday morning quarterback and go, at what point do, does the audience start to fill in the gap for themselves? But you needed that room because we had to become attached to those particular characters in the second half. And, yes. Oh, my gosh. If you haven't seen yes. I See You, you have to, you'll probably think that Devin and I are talking in code here. But I'm trying not to spoil <laughs> anything for you guys. You have to become attached to those characters because otherwise you're like, yeah, they deserve what happens. But you, right. you yes. have to become emotionally invested in them. So it's just so layered. And, and I'm wondering, the title, I See You, what inspired the title? Because that's another subliminal thing. It's not, you're, you don't put a, too fine a point even on the title. Well, you know, I honestly can't take credit for the title. I I had, the, the movie was originally called, which actually I maybe won't say what the movie was originally called because it is a bit of a spoiler. And I think, that it was a it's a term that that they that you come to learn about in the film and a lot of people were like we're, we're scared to, to name the movie this because if someone googles this before they see the movie it'll spoil what the midway twist is and it was a very smart um mm-hmm. smart note that that i got so the title was um ribbit someone else that, that wasn't even yeah right exactly um so someone someone else that wasn't even in, they didn't, didn't end up even being involved in the final part version of the movie that was involved at another stage in production when it lived at a different company. She came up with that title, and that's sort of been the title that stayed ever since. Was was this other person that that came up? And I'm, I'm yeah, I'm grateful that um, that people like it and that that it seems to fit the, the film. But um, but I yeah, it wasn't my idea. Well, it's genius. When can when can we expect the next Devin Gray thriller? Really, when when can we expect another movie? Oh man, I mean, I I I would love. I, I have so many films that I'm in the midst of writing right now, and and sort of you know who knows. Some of them are at the studio level where you know they they green light me to go write something, but then you never know if they're actually going to make the film once it's been written. So I would I hope one of these gets made. Um, you know, there's probably six or seven right now that are living in different stages of. Um, the potential to be made, but I, I, I sort of don't know which one will be made next and how it will be made. Um, yeah, I wish I could say that there was something in production right now, but there's nothing else currently in production. They're just sort of in those stages of um, trying to attach actors and some of them have directors attached already and some of them are financed, some of them are waiting for financing. So um, I'm not sure, but but they all, you know, hopefully they all still live in that ICU world where it does give you that satisfying um, twist and and the feeling of of watching something that that is slightly different than anything else that has been in that genre before. That's I mean that sounds super pretentious to say, but that is sort of my goal is that it, that it reinvents the the horror genre and the thriller genre somewhat um, each time. Now you mentioned Agatha Christie. I see notes of Hitchcock just in the way things unfold. Who are your who are your inspirations and why thrillers and why horror? Oh wow, I love. I, gosh, I love so many. I mean, Lynch is a huge inspiration of mine all yep. the time. I mean, I love David Lynch. And, and, and funny enough, Adam Randall, who directed ICU, he loves Lynch too. And we never talked about that. But it, a lot of what he sort of gravitated to in the film, you know, is certain Lynch aspects. Um, but obviously no one can do Lynch but Lynch. So it, it's um, – I, I love him though. I love um, I love Fincher. I mean, Gillian Flynn is is my all-time favorite writer. I, I I have feel such a kinship with her when I read her work. And um, so, so she's someone that as a writer, I just, I I want, I want to emulate. I want to, I want to be, have characters like hers. I want to have the, the world that she, that she creates is something that I want to live in all the time. And um, so, so definitely what Fincher's did with, uh, with Gone Girl, you know, I love, I love that. Um, sharp objects, um, Jean-Marc Vallée. I mean, I think that he's just such a genius filmmaker and, um, and how they did that series is so brilliant. Um, I also really love like Charlie Kaufman as well, which is not, um, not necessarily a thriller like we're used to, but there's pieces of that, even like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind has, it's a lovely film, but there is that underbelly of kind of some weird creepiness that gets in there. And, um, and I love, I love his writing. I just think he's a wonderful writer with adaptation being one of my favorite films. And um, that outside the box 
I sort of, when I was talking to my agents, when I first signed with them, I was like, you know, my, my goal is to sort of blend Charlie Kaufman with Gillian Flynn. Like, so those are, if I could make that world over and over again, that's what I would kind of want to do. Wonderful. Did working on Dexter for nine episodes, and I didn't realize it was only nine because your presence is felt throughout the, I'm, at, I'm on season two now. Uh, did, oh, thank you. Thank you. Did working on Dexter... I don't want to say inspired, that's not the word I'm looking for, but did it enhance that interest in the thriller and the mystery and maybe give you some inspiration by osmosis? I, I think it must have. I mean, I think probably more than anything, like I, I think I have an inherent sort of draw to, to dark things and mm-hmm. um, I have an interest in that. I, I, I love true crime um, and I think that probably something in me made me castable as the young Dexter because there is sort of that, um, that, that, that draw to the darkness. And a lot of the roles that I've played as an actor have, have lived in that at least 80% of them have been somewhat psycho killer people. And so I think that, um, probably that, (laughs) that then when I go to write, that also comes out in that as well. Um, so yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, Dexter, I'm sure had had an influence, and in, you know, some of the first scripts I ever read were were Dexter because I was I was so young when I was doing that show. So I definitely that imprinted something on me. I'm sure reading reading those great writers that that were on that show. Um, yeah, I don't. I I would be hard to pinpoint exactly what what did that, but I I I, I just love that whole world. I love I love um, yeah, yeah thriller horror stuff. What was the work? with Dexter how did you get into the because uh, you play Dexter at his most vulnerable as he's just realizing that he's that he's going to become a serial killer what was the work what was the conversations with the directors with the writers about how you should approach it and how much of the character's backstory which we get uh, in between season one and two did were you privy to about what created him well, I read the book. I read um, Darkly Dreaming Dexter, which was the, the book um, that the show was based on. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I was cast, I I read that book in like three days before going to film my first episode. So that the book gave me a lot of context because the first episode of the, the script doesn't tell you a ton about his backstory and what happened to him and um, where the book obviously does. So So that definitely was a, a good touchstone. For me, um, I also think something really interesting that I, I wasn't aware of at the time that I played Dexter was I I grew up in a very religious um, environment and I was gay and I was closeted and I was mm-hmm. I was very um, uh, ashamed and kind of horrified about this part in me that I felt like I could never get rid of and shake. And I think even though I wasn't out at the time when I when I did Dexter, I think there was some part of me that identified with being a knowing what it was to be a teenage kid and having this thing in you that obviously being gay is so of course different than what Dexter's struggling with. But, but I just, I could, uh, on a, just a character uh, empathy standpoint, I knew like what it was to have something in me that, that was different. And I, I was frustrated by, and I was uh, a part of me liked it, a part of me hated it. And, and so I look back at some of those scenes and I don't even think that I was conscious of, of what my connection was to that. But I think now knowing who I am and, and what I've been through, I'm like, oh, I think that that was probably another piece of that character that, that helped me understand um, what it felt like to be in a world where um, some part of you wasn't accepted and, and you wanted to kind of bury it and hide it and didn't know what to do with it. Um, so that's that's something that I, I, I kind of think with that character that was really helpful to me at the time. And then obviously Michael C. Hall, we didn't have any scenes together. So I, I had no idea what he was doing with the character the first season until I saw it. I, I, I literally just had no clue what his version of Dexter was. Um, so a lot of the directors, I, I, I think they were influential in sort of steering me to, to kind of touch on, on a performance that would be somewhat similar to what, what he had done with the character. Um, but I was also just so afraid every day cause I, it was my first job and I, <laughs> I was just, I, you know, I'd never been on a, on a set like that, like every week, like coming to work. And, and I, I, I look back on that experience and a lot of the time I was just very afraid yeah. the whole time. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure who was the actor who played Harry? His name's escaping me. James Raymar. Yeah. James Raymar. Uh, yes. He, you, the chemistry between you two was excellent. So, so it seems like he was a bit of a help to guiding he him was a literally. Wonder- 
<laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, he's such a good actor too. I mean, he he was just in in it every scene. As soon as you know, you say action, it's like he made it very easy to believe. Like this is my dad. This is because he's just so he's so in it and so connected when he's acting with with his scene partner. So yeah, he definitely, of course, helped him um, and put me at ease uh, when I was when my nerves were kind of going out of control. After that first year, did you have any conversations with Michael about this? character this phenomenon i mean only a few people have gotten to play dexter at various stages and it's still a a fan favorite did you have any conversations with michael you know we never really talked to i think i i've, I've only ever had a very few interactions with michael and i i the only one i kind of remember is that at the rap party for season one i'm t- i'm probably like two inches taller than than he is and i remember him commenting on that and being like i didn't realize how t- this is so weird that you're so much taller than me like this is so funny and um and that that i think was the only time we ever really talked about anything to do with dexter so <laughs> um yeah i mean that you know he obviously was so busy during that shoot like you know filming he's on screen pretty much the whole time so um and then when i would come in it would be like his times that he was off so so yeah we, we never really we never talked about any of that really no See, that's always fascinating when there's actors who play characters at various stages, but they never meet the main actor because you'd think there'd be some kind of table read or something to get everybody in the same mindset. But yet the, but that's a testament to the directors and the writers uh, to get everybody on the same page, almost literally, uh, in terms of what right. is on the script and what needs to go down the lens. Totally. And you know what? I, I am realizing we did have – there were table reads – that I, that I would go to. So I did, I never mm-hmm. talked to Michael there, but I did see him and I actually did hear, but you know, table read, no one's actually a lot of the time performing it the way that they're going to on screen. A lot of the time, especially the series regulars on a show, they're so tired. It's their lunch break. They're, they're coming to the table read with their lunch and they're, they're reading their lines, but they're not really acting any of it yet. So, um, so I, I but I, you know, in saying that I, I did realize that I, I guess I saw some glimmers of what he would do at the table reads here and there. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That is just so cool. And it's funny because I added I see you to my queue before I ever even started watching Dexter. I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's this guy. I I got to go watch it. (laughs) Oh, that's so awesome. That's so cool. You know, is there any other work of yours out there that you want to talk about, promote that's up there on Prime, Netflix, any any little hidden gems or is I see you kind of it right now? I mean, you have such a sweet deal being able to write and have the deal for the green lights and, and whether they get made or not is not up to you. So is there any of your work out there right now that we can go check out beyond ICU as a writer? As a writer, the only thing that, that has, um, that has been made of mine is, is ICU. That's hmm. the only film that, so, I mean, like I said, there's a bunch of other stuff in the works that will hopefully come out at, at some point in time. Um, and it's interesting that I wrote I See You so long ago. So it's, it was definitely a long journey to have that movie finally made. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, there's nothing else to, to, to on the writing side, no. Like, I, I have, you know, obviously lots of acting projects that are, that are floating around to different, different streaming services and stuff. But, um, but writing-wise, yeah, I, I See You is sort of it for the time being. And, and hopefully enough people will like it and want to see more and... Um, yeah, so so uh, I know I wish I could say there was more out there, but but it's, it's just that one for now. Well, I really I can't I can't wait to see what you do next. My last question for you: Obviously, you started acting before the success as a writer kind of propelled you to where you are now. Are you finding that the acting is going, the desire to act is going away in in favor of of writing, or are you trying to find a balance? If you, I hate to phrase the question as if you had to pick, but what are you noticing about your career trajectory in this industry and where it's headed for you? Well, I think, you know, it's to me, I feel like the, the writing, I mean, the acting definitely has made me the writer that I am and, mm-hmm. and continues to, I think that, you know, auditioning and, and still, still act, you know, I, I've, I've still work as an actor, you know, several times throughout the year on, on an indie film or guest spot on a TV show, or, you know, they, they, I do still have acting work coming in. And I think that having to switch my brain into that other arena where I'm the, the person coming to the script, I didn't write it, but I'm coming to it and I have to investigate and figure out who is this character? What is the writer's intention with this? Like what life do I breathe into this person that already exists on this page? It's a, it's a good tool that I'm working, um, 
by approaching stuff that way, I think that tool crosses over to when I write, I'm sort of primed to get to use that same sort of brain when I write my characters and understand like, you know, what is the approach to this from a human standpoint, the same way that I would approach a character, like what, what's the truth here? Like, who is the truth of this person? What's their background? What's their history? All the work you do as an actor to make sure the performance is as true and believable as possible. I'm employing all of that as a writer. And so I, I would hate to see one of them go away because I do think that they make the other one better. Um, yeah. So I, 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 yeah, it's a hard thing to say. I writing right now because I am finding so much success in it. I think that it's definitely taken the spotlight, but, um, but I love acting. I think acting is, it's, it's, there's a bravery to acting that you don't find in writing because writing, you obviously get to do it in the privacy of your little home or your room or wherever, you know, no one's seeing the work happen as it's happening or acting. I think you, you know, you, the camera's rolling or you're on stage and you just have to go, you just have to kind of jump and dive and, and, and allow mistakes to be there. And so that the vulnerability of that, I think is, is something I don't want to lose in my life because I think it makes me a better person. And I think there's sort of an adventure aspect to that, that, that I don't get the same in my writing. Um, so yeah, so hopefully that answers that question. And I, you know, I, I can't really choose one or the other, but that is sort of my, my uh, approach to it all. And now it is time for our next guest, Leslie Hope. I have been a fan of this woman for years uh, because when I was in college, I found a little show called 24. And 24, she played Terry Bauer. And uh, I've just loved her. I thought she's a fantastic actress. In fact, you hear me fawn over, over that in this episode. Now, she is the producer and stars in the 2019 movie Lie Exposed. And Lie Exposed is a film that explores some pretty deep concepts about personhood and what a woman can do with her body and and sex and love and it is just a fantastic fantastic film it is streaming now but of course leslie hope has been in like everything she's been in the mentalist 24 as i mentioned just one of the most prolific female character actors but in this interview she talks about her decision to retire from acting and that lie exposed is actually her last project in front of the camera. Now she is behind the camera, most notably on Netflix Lost in Space Revival, the fantastic, beautifully done Netflix series. So we talk about all of that and more. So here now to tell us all about her career, our interview with Leslie Hope. Leslie Hope, welcome to the show. How are you today? Uh, I'm good. And first, thank you so much for having me. And Today, I am in beautiful Vancouver, a little tired from a week of shooting on Lost in Space, but I am good. Oh, that is awesome. Uh, how's that been going with COVID? Uh, how's, the, how's the shooting been going? You know, remarkably well. We're in British Columbia in Vancouver, so it, you know, it's not as brutal here in terms of the numbers as it is in the States, in California. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, there have been very strict precautions in terms of the protocols for shooting and the adjustment of getting used to seeing everybody in face shields and masks and trying to keep our distance and uh, temperature checks and three times a week uh, COVID tests was certainly an adjustment, but somehow it's all become normal for us, um, which is that's that's the the way we're going to work and be able to continue to work. So we've been very lucky in that we haven't had to shut down or there's been no situations for us where um, we're in a precarious situation, so we're good. Um, but the end of that is, it is weird to go to work every day with a bunch of people and everybody's in a mask. So, but happy to be working and happy to be on this show. That is that is great. Um, what did you do during the lockdown? How did you uh, how did you stay sane during this this COVID when we were all <laughs> staying at home? Well, I was. I'd actually just been in Toronto for the Canadian uh, theatrical opening of Lie Exposed, and little did we know what we were about to sort of head into in California. I'd Mm -hmm. flown down to California, right? I have a place there in Santa Barbara, and within days, we were on lockdown in California, and I was supposed to be heading up to Vancouver for another job to direct, and um, so the first first 
couple of weeks were like for everybody, just weird and strange and what's going to happen. And then on a personal level in, in, in my household, we just sort of settled into this small family life, which frankly I hadn't had the opportunity to do because of work for a while. So my son was coming up. We painted the house outside. We painted the exterior of the house. Oh, nice. Um, we landscaped. We had theme night family dinners on Friday night. And uh, we, we made the most of our time, uh, you know, our sort of enforced time together. So um, despite all the fucking the despair and tragedy that everybody was dealing with in our, our little bubble in California, it became largely about our family and coming together for that time. Mm-hmm. And we were that way until, I guess, about July when I first came back to work up on, I was directing up here on a, another show, on Ben Helsing up here. And that was the first time I, I had left the house, really, oh, wow. in all those months. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Well, I'm glad that all actors, all entertainers, are back to work. Uh, it's so good to see that they're taking the precautions, but that, that, you know, the final product, I would assume, is going to look like it was never a pandemic to begin with. So that that's really, really great. Before we talk about the movie, I want to tell you, when I was in college, I discovered a little show called 24. And I <laughs> watched the first season and I remember posting on Facebook, and it comes up every year in my in my memories that I posted this bombastic statement. And I said, because uh, I saw the final episode, I was shocked. I was not expecting what happens there to happen. And I went on Facebook and I said, they need, I know this is old, but they, they should have thrown Emmys at Leslie Hope for her portrayal of Terry Bauer. I absolutely loved it. How did you come to that role and... and obviously it was a little strange. It was a strange concept for the time. I mean, what was that process like being a part of this unique show, the first season, not sure if it was going to work and then seeing the phenomenon it became? Um, Well, that's a big question. So Mm -hmm. uh, the the first part of it is I came to it like most working actors come to a job is, you know, I auditioned, I met the guys and I got the job. So that was, that was great. Um, I was actually licking my wounds when I went to that audition because a, a small movie that I was trying to get up and running as a director had just fallen apart. And really as a consolation prize, I suppose it was like, well, I guess I'll just go to this audition, see what happens. So I get that job. And that seems pretty great. Um, I was, you know, like most shows, we were just going to do the pilot first. Um, although that show obviously doesn't work as just a pilot, right? It, it, it only can work with 24 episodes, but we, you know, we do the pilot and we wait. And the pilot itself was just really a special, great experience. And I remember watching it for the first time before it had aired once. Oh man, they did something good here. I mean, it was going to go. Yeah. Um, but we, we were also proud of that. What would have happened at the pilot? Kiefer was extraordinary. We had, funnily enough, we had quite a few Canadians on that show just by chance. Mm-hmm. And um, we were all in it together. Then we get picked up, and we happen to be shooting in in L.A. outside of the sort of the main sort of uh, the stages and studios in L.A. We were a little bit further out of town, and frankly, the executives didn't really want to come visit us and make that drive. So we were kind of on our own on these stages, and it felt like I mean I'm sure they were overlooking stuff, but it felt like we were really. Um, on our own in the best way on our own to try and make it the best we could. We had Stephen Hopkins as a, our ongoing producer director who directed every other two. So we had a continuity and we just had this extraordinary time making it. Um, and it was truly to this day, one of the best professional and personal experiences I've had um, as an actor. Then when the show, we got to about episode 13 and we didn't know if we were going to get picked up for the, the final episodes to make it mm, 24. Um, <clears throat> so we waited and we waited and we waited. And I don't know if you remember the show that well, but there was almost a finale built into episode 13, like just in case we didn't come back for the repeating yeah. episodes. Um, and um, we got a late pickup because up until that point, the show wasn't doing awesome. It was fine. And it was gaining a lot of steam. It seemed with, the critics and stuff, but the numbers were not extraordinary in terms of people watching. Mm-hmm. And then they did, I thought what was a great move is they started because the show works, you know, in sequence, right? They started uh, re-airing on FX. So it was on Fox. And they, were, they were re-airing on FX 
and that seemed to be building up a little steam. But even still, it wasn't blowing up the way it, it eventually did. Yeah. I think, if I, if I understand it correctly, what really sort of put it through was when it aired in its totality or was available on DVD. And all of a sudden, you could sit down and really binge, which we're, we're so used to now. But yeah. then was not something that happened. You had to wait a week for the next episode, right? Um, and it was in that summer that it, I think it sort of blew up and gained a kind of momentum. Yeah. Um, but in terms of me personally, uh, the fact that the, that character was, was killed, I think sort of set at the time a new sort of model for how a TV series could work. You could kill the hero's wife. You could kill the pregnant hero's wife. Yeah, And you could not only kill her, you could kill her by stabbing her in the guts, right? Like, <laughs> this was not something that we were used to in the TV model yeah. um, for how things go. We also weren't used to the, the hero losing, in a way, uh, you know, or suffering in that kind of way. Yeah. Um, and I thought it really was, at the time, and I still think it, it, it was really um, exemplary in terms of how, not only its format, but how it said, TV series could go. I was very proud to be a part of it, and, and still am. You know, and the thing I've always wanted to ask, and it's probably the most cliche question you could get, but at what point did you know that the fate of Terry Bauer, <laughs> at what point in the process did you know? Um, almost not until it aired, almost. Because what we did, it, because it was such a sort of new idea, I suppose, of, of killing the, the, the hero's wife. Mm-hmm. You know, he spent an entire 24 episodes trying to get back to his wife and kid, and then, uh-oh, too bad, so sad, not going to happen. Um, that was a big idea for everyone to process, and I mean up at Fox all the way down through us, you know, through the actors. Um, and so it was probably literally a week or so before we were going to shoot it, um, and at this point we were dealing with sort of secret scripts and don't tell the world and internet was just starting to blow up in terms of uh, people weighing in on TV shows, you know, and yeah. uh, conspiracy theories and what that, all that stuff was sort of a newer thing, not like now. Um, so we shot three endings. We shot, yeah, she's dead. We shot, yeah, she's fatally wounded, but will she or won't she survive? And we shot, yeah, she's made it and she opens her eyes. Um, in that moment, basically, and mm. everything's going to be okay. And, and I will tell you that even shooting it, we all, I think, we all knew it was better that she's dead. But even still, I didn't really know for sure which way they were going to go until it aired. Wow. See, that's that's not yeah. the answer I would have expected. And I think they made the right decision. Wow. That, yeah, they did, because that's that moment has stuck with me through uh, through all the years that I've been a fan of the show and a fan of yours. You are so versatile as an actor, director, producer. Let's talk about Lie Exposed. Talk about taking a risk and telling a really, really interesting <laughs> story. What? Uh, t- tell me about the, the nexus and for this project and how you came to be so deeply involved in it. Well, I was um, at the time that uh, it was a play first. It was a play called Pornography, yep. uh, written by my good pal Jeff Kober, who was an actor turning writer. Um, and uh, I-, I was phasing out of acting at that point, or, or was intending to. I was starting to direct, and I thought that that would be where I would I would want to live um, in my professional life. But Jeff came to me with the 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 play to say he wanted to do an informal, like a play reading, where a bunch of actors sit around in a living room and just read. Um, just to see what he had and what, what how this might work. So that's not an unusual occurrence in L.A. with a bunch of actors. You all sit around and all of us, let's just say, were of a certain vintage. We're no kids there. We're just grown-up pros and helping a pal out by reading. And what I was really struck was that the reading, which was super informal, was the conversations that happened afterwards, which were incendiary. People felt so passionately about everything from I'm just going to say it, hair on the nether regions to porn, to dying, forgiveness, affairs, relationships, um, love, alcoholism, all the things that are, you know, threaded through that, that, that's the time to play. And then the movie, um, their reactions were so intense. There was nobody who was a jaded old actor going, yeah, whatever. Good luck, bud. Peace. (laughs) It was really involved and kind of impassioned. And I was struck by that, that for this particular group 
to be so moved and incited um, by a play reading, I thought there was an opportunity there to turn it, that the, the material was good. Mm-hmm. And the opportunity for me to turn it into a movie was the way I saw that that piece of material could work great for me, that I could I could get that going. And at the time, frankly, even though Jeff had written it with me in mind, I didn't necessarily think that was going to be me. But I thought, well, you know, Chikorita would be a good person to direct, to direct this and get together with our pals up um, back home in, in Canada. We could we could get this off the ground the way I'd been running my formerly uh, theater company was, you know, get the best people, just come on in and, hey, you know, my mom will make curtains and let's make a show sort of thing. Uh, but as Jeff started to work on developing the material, it was the oddest thing for me because I had, like I said, was phasing out of acting, I thought. But it was like, oh, I am supposed to act in this. This is for me to do. I don't feel. I didn't feel. hadn't felt that very often as an actor. Twenty four was a piece that I felt that, but it wasn't something that all the time I was so desperate to perform and everything was so right for me to do. I was a working actor. I made my living as an actor, but well, let's face it, some jobs are better than others. Right. Um, but this was something that I thought, oddly for me, was something I should do. Mm-hmm. Um, so off we go, and Cobra starts developing it with. Uh, you know, I'm working with him on the development. Jerry Chikoridi's brought in as a director. He's just one of my favorite people and favorite directors. And the beginning of the casting process was, well, do you think Bruce Greenwood would do it? He was also my pal and somebody I'd worked with um, and somebody I could ask. Um, and Bruce said yes, and we were off to the races in terms of pulling together a group, but pulling together a company that would be able to make this work with our very limited funds and very limited time with Bruce's schedule. So that was sort of how it all started. Um, and that took a while to sort of pull the pieces together and find the right window that everybody could work in. Um, and we knew that we would shoot a little bit in LA and we knew that we would shoot the rest of Toronto where our, where our peeps were, where our um, relationships were in terms of who might want to jump in on something like this mm-hmm. um, for a couple of days as an actor or for, you know, the 12 days we were going to shoot if you were crew. And that's what we shot it in was 12 days. Oh, wow. How was that shooting it yeah. only in, in 12 days? Was it hectic or was it, was it laid back? Was it easy? Well, it, uh, not hectic per se, because we'd had so much time with the material. Um, so we all knew what the movie was stepping as best we could, you know, stepping into it. We all knew what the material was. We all knew the, the themes that we were trying to investigate. We all knew what our relationships were. You know, for free comes my long-standing relationship with Bruce in real life. I mean, we've played husband and wife before. We've known each other since I was a kid, like 18, 19 or something in, in L.A. Wow. So that kind of development stuff was already in play. Um, so the relationship stuff, uh, how we related to each other, that was not hectic. Um, uh, what was, <laughs> frankly, what was a little hectic was I, the movie's made for $350,000. Okay. So that, that amount of money, which is a huge amount of money, of course, to anybody personally, right. but a very tiny amount of money to make a movie with the hectic part for me, frankly, was because I took a loan out against my place was having the bank come through in time. <laughs> that oh, was wow. like, if they didn't do that, then we, 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 and we paid everybody, right? So we had, you know, real proper payroll and everybody was properly compensated for their work. But it was everything from, you know, paying actors to making sure that we had coffee. Wait, that wait, wait. stuff was, for me, a little hectic, like, was the bank going to come through in time? And they did. I have to stop you there because there are not many actors, not many producers, especially who have reached your level of success and name recognition, who would take the money out against their own property to finance a, a film. You believed in it that much. Well, I did believe in it that much. And, you know, not for nothing. I, I, I did try the traditional route to start with, which is I went to, you know, grown up producers of a certain level of uh, experience in, in Toronto and in Canada. Anyway, the way that most movies get made is with the participation of Telefilm, which is our government agency that sponsors Canadian films, right? Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I just didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go through the bureaucracy and red tape tangles of telefilm. I, and I didn't want mm, that kind of oversight. Um, I, I thought, well, if we're going to do it this way, then we need to do it 
ourselves, part one. And part two of it was, was yeah, if I'm going to ask Bruce Greenwood to come work for basically zero, I mean, we pay him whatever we had to, you know, the basic stipend, but if I'm going to ask Bruce Greenwood, then I better put, you know, my skin in the game, really. Um, and in fact, if I'm asking anybody to do that, I mean, let's face it, for $350,000, that would pay on a real movie. Maybe it would pay me for Bruce or, or one and a half Bruce's or something. I mean, it's it's a really small amount of money and the value that those actors were basically giving us in the movie was such that I felt like, uh, here's what I can do. Here's the mm-hmm. only thing I can do. And it's certainly, sure, it's a risk going into to anything, but I was convinced and remain convinced that at this sort of tiny budget level with that level of actor and that kind of material that the risk was only... Um, how long it would take to get the money back. It wasn't that it would come back. Um, and I still conti- I continue to believe in the project in that way, and um, yeah. it is all going to work out okay. Uh, but I think it is important to know that um, when you step into something like that, that the producer, in this case me, really means it. It's it, uh, I'm not just asking you to work for nothing. Uh, I really do believe in the project, and here's how. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's my property on the line. So yeah. that's how much um, I believe in it. I don't, you know, I I don't advise it for, for everybody for sure. I was fortunate that I had something I could leverage, you know. Um, and uh, uh, at the same time, you know, at my one of my first jobs was with uh, John Cassavetes, and I was a very young actor in L.A. And I watched Cassavetes do that. You know, he would make movies mortgaging his house, and then he'd go do a paying gig elsewhere with the studio system, and you know pay his mortgage and then go back and make a movie mortgaging his house and wow. then go get hired somewhere else. And I, um, that impressed me at, at, at a young age and, um, at an old age, which I am now, I, I still think it's meaningful if the person who's making it believes in it to that extent. Um, and I did and I do. I love that. So that conversation happened after the reading, that incendiary conversation sparked debate. People mm-hmm. were passionate. The folks here in the U.S., now that it's having its American release, what do you hope the kinds of conversations happen when people see this film? What do you hope the audiences <clears throat> take and, and start debating about? Well, I... um I hope they. Uh, I hope that they witness and take whatever's meaningful for them. That was the interesting thing to me about the, the movie mm-hmm. um, when we opened in Canada. Talking about it this morning to somebody actually that um, that it, it speaks personally in so many different ways to people. It's like a Rorschach test of um, where your sweet spots are. Let's say so. Um, for example, when we were up in Canada, I had sort of. Um, wrongly estimated, well, the movie would mostly speak to women of a certain vintage, like me. Um, I'm in my fifties. Um, I've had a, you know, a, a rich life. I've been in significant relationships and I'm at the age where shit starts happening, right? People mm-hmm. start dying. Oh. Um, people have affairs. Um, people question things that they've sort of, you know, set their foundational things they've set their life up on. We all know somebody who's working in a 12 step program alcoholism, or drug addiction, all those things. Um, but I didn't expect that it would really speak to young men my son's age, like in their, in their 20s, right? Uh, but I was really struck in Canada. There's um, My assistant had several of her friends come and happened to be dudes. They, a lot of them talked about sadness and grief and porn and what that actually meant, which stunned me. I didn't expect it would land there. Um, the Older men, meaning you know, men in their forties and fifties, um, they <clears throat> they talked about um, uh, relationship affair stuff, like what you know, strug- struggling within um, relationship. Women my age talked about um, their, let's just say, sexual identity uh, or their vital their their vital identity and how it shifts from twenties to thirties to forties to fifties as a female as a woman. So I found, what I found is that everybody has a different reaction to it, depending on who they are. But it works like a little sort of kaleidoscope puzzle of, you know, you sort of twist the kaleidoscope and you get a different picture. That's yeah. how I think the movie's been working. And um, 
in a very subjective way. You, it, it's one of the reasons it's been a bit hard sometimes to talk about. It. It's like, what is this movie? It's like, well, for me, it's going to be entirely different message for you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what I can say, no matter what, is those performances, I'll take myself out of the equation, all those performances of those other actors are, I think, sublime, committed, authentic, and I think it's beautifully directed and written. Um, but the interpretation and the shorthand of someone like Jerry Chikoridi is what sort of brought it all together. Right. I, well, I'm excited. Where can American audiences uh, find it? Because quite frankly, I couldn't see anything on the uh, the distribution except Vudu, uh, the Vudu app for some smart TVs. Where will it be distributed uh, here in the States? It's on Apple TV. It's mm-hmm. on Hulu. It's, I'm going to give you... Um, I'm going to have to have Brianna give you the official list. I know Apple for sure. Great. Um, and I'm going to pull it up right now as I'm talking to you. Hang on. So sure. lame that I don't have the list right in front of me. That's why Brianna should have been on the phone with us because she could cycle the list. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yes. And I'm pulling it up. Um, Google. Um I'm in the hotel waiting for my uh, computer to boot up here. Isn't that lame that I don't have the full list for you right here? No, no, no. Um, well, that's that's. What have you got as your list? Let me. T- I'll tell you yes or no. <laughs> Am I allowed to jump in? Yeah, please. <laughs> yes, Brianna. Thank I you. have the list. It's Apple TV, Direct TV, Google Play, Prime Video, Fandango now. Oh, great! There you go. On great. digital. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Well, let's leave before I let you go. We have to talk about one other role of yours that I absolutely love. Uh, and it was, oddly enough, just a few appearances that you did. But it's it's still one of it's a show that got me through the pandemic. So I have to I have to talk about it. Your role as another psychic on The Mentalist was just oh. absolutely <laughs> a, a, a killer performance. How much fun did you have working with uh, Simon Baker and that whole team that looked like that looks like such a fun show to do it you know it was a fun show to do and there's you know there's lots of reasons why you, you know, one finds himself in a job or, and you never know what it's going to turn into right when you step into something mm-hmm. but I'm going to start with uh, Chris Long Chris Long is one of my bosses on that show and I love working for him his wife Erin Donovan's a good pal of mine she's a writer other projects we want to do together and so i was stepping into that for me personally that was awesome to step into the chris long world um simon baker mr charm himself you know when i first got in there i was like i didn't actually know about the show that much when i I started acting on it but i thought it was a great character to introduce um into his world and in particular um it's even though you don't see it as much in the show robin's honey who um uh is his his real female counterpart in that show, not not the character I played of Christina Fry. Yeah. She and I became pals on that show too. So I, I really that all of that soup was really fun to be a part of. And on a personal level too, you know, it shot in LA. It was five minutes from my house shooting at that studio. For me that was just like, what a gift. I can go to work and be home like within minutes as opposed to hours so or days as that matter traveling. So it was that's a it's a while ago for me, but that was a really fun um, experience. I love it. My last question for you: You said you were moving away from from being on camera to being behind the scenes. Do you consider Lie Exposed? Do you consider this this it? Do you think you're done with acting and you're going to yep. stay? Oh wow, that's an easy answer. <laughs> yep. Um, well, I tell you, you know, um, I've been in the business now for I'm just going to say it 40 years. Oh wow, 40 years. Well, next year will be 40 years. So I spent a long time in front of the camera. Um, uh, I certainly had a great run as an actor. And in, in, in considering how I would be ultimately transitioning to directing, which I have, but I did I did think about, well, if I go out, I want to go out with something that I'm proud of. I want to retire feeling like um, I'd done not only a, a performance or a piece of material that I was proud of, but that the punctuation could be of the, a career could be something I was proud of. So I didn't, for me personally, I didn't feel like I could do much better than my exposed. It was something that I was obviously hugely invested in with people I loved and admired and respected with one of my favorite directors. I mean, that's the way to go. Not um, uh, doing a guest spot on some show where, you know, nobody even remembers your name because <laughs> they're only there for a day. 
So I, I uh, uh, for me, that was a, a fitting end to a long time as an actor. But I'm not done. I mean, I've been no. I've been directing for several years now, but now solely directing and producing, and, and happily so. Um, but I felt like I could leave that career with my head held high and, um, you know, begin my next phase of that, which has been directing, which, again, is, for me has been um, just wonderful in some place I'm very happy to be. I'm here on Lost in Space. I'm going to have to do the new Star Trek. I'm going to come back to Snowpiercer, which I worked on last year. So I, I'm in a world that I'm very happy to be in. Um, and as I describe it, I say, with shoes that fit, you know, I feel like I'm in the, I'm in the right job for me now. Leslie and Devin, thank you both so very, very much for your time. I really appreciate having the both of you on Talk for Two. We wanted to double up this week. Last week, the inauguration got in the way, and we just could not make, uh, I could not make my air date, so I thought I'll just have two guests and expand the episode. So here we are. When you own and run your own uh, online talk show, you can make all of those choices. That's it for us today. Remember, you can always check out talkfor2.com for the latest. Remember to follow us at Talk for Two on Twitter and Facebook and TikTok and at Talk for Two Pod on uh, Instagram. And you can reach out to me directly at Talk for Two Cast, T A L K F O R T W O C A S T, at gmail.com. And remember to subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com. <laughs>